A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. Hello, I'm Tim Farron and welcome to the show which delves into the mucky business of politics through the eyes of Christians. Now, you might think that politics is tainted by compromise and sin. Well, yes, you'd be right to think that, but then again, so is everything else. And I think we should be praying in an informed way for our brothers and sisters who operate in the world of politics. Today, we're going to be joined by the returning Lord Farmer. He's a Conservative peer, and he's going to talk to us about his work in prisons and unpacking his thoughts around justice and forgiveness. But before that, regular listeners will know that I've got strong views on the issues of refugees, with which some of you will disagree, hopefully some of you may even agree. So let me say that it's perfectly legitimate for Christians to come to different conclusions on what our asylum and immigration policy should look like, just as Christians take different views on all aspects of government policy. That's fine. Almost all of us, for example, agree that our borders should not be open to all and that we should stop criminal gangs profiteering from desperate people risking their lives to cross the channel. There's agreement. But I believe that the government's current plans should raise a massive red flag to anyone who seeks to follow the teachings of Jesus. Rishi Sunak faces a very difficult general election next year, and he staked everything, it would appear, on stopping the boats. He is being pulled in opposing directions by internal conservative factions and has Nigel Farage, fresh from the celebrity jungle, also breathing down his neck. So the new Rwanda, brackets asylum and immigration bill, is important to him, but at a cost to the UK, I would say, as it risks undermining the codes and assumptions underpinning the entire British political system. By all means, let's have a debate about the sovereignty of Parliament and the importance of checks and balances between legislature, judiciary and government to stop the abuse of power. And let's discuss with our international neighbours whether the wording of treaties written decades ago are still fit for purpose, as more and more people are displaced around the world. But this bill circumvents these questions and goes so much further. When dealing with people arriving on our shores by irregular means, it proposes to disapply, in other words, to totally ignore, all of the following. The Human Rights Convention, the Refugee Convention, the 1966 International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, the 1984 UN Convention Against Torture and Other Cruel, Inhuman or Degrading Treatment or Punishment, the Council of Europe Convention on Action Against Trafficking in Human Beings, and any international laws, including decisions by the European Court of Human Rights. Now, supporters of the Rwanda bill argue that this is necessary because it is meant to be a deterrent to stop people from wanting to travel here at all. But the government is still planning to spend £700 million on dealing with migrants arriving by small boat until at least 2030. This suggests it does not believe its own gamble will pay off, and ramping up the rhetoric does not justify the use of any means necessary to achieve its ends. Honestly, I'm deeply ashamed that a British government can even consider passing legislation to disregard basic human protections against torture, inhuman treatment and trafficking people into slavery simply because it calculates that this might help them to avoid an election defeat. The government's own figures show that the bulk of those arriving from Syria, Iran, Iraq, Pakistan, Eritrea and Sudan are genuine refugees fleeing dreadful situations yet still they propose to pull up the drawbridge. We're also flouting international law and deliberately trashing our global reputation as a welcoming country. 
If this bill becomes law, it sets a precedent to any future government to abandon its duty of care and stewardship to achieve its own short-term political goals. This bill also seeks to enshrine in law a principle that the government, any government, can make something true simply by declaring it to be so. In this case, that Rwanda is a safe country. This is not simply an astonishing act of wishful thinking. In the hands of a potential future extremist government, it becomes positively Orwellian. Regardless of where we stand on the immigration debate, as Christians, we must surely have deep concerns about this bill, because we hold that all are created in the image of God, with awesome dignity and equality, and every one of us is worth a vast amount to him. Christianity plays a foundational role in defining and sustaining what we call civil liberties and human rights. Without a God, human rights are surely just a passing fashion, a human invention. But with God, human rights have a deep and vast meaning, and we sneer at them at our peril. And surely the point of human rights is that they are universal. Either humans have them, or we do not. If you take them away from one group of people, they are no longer human rights. They become rights for some humans, it seems the government gets to decide which of us counts as human. Many of the objections to my line of argument from Christians is not so much the principle of welcoming refugees, but the practical reality. Yes, doing right by asylum seekers will be costly and complex, but evidently so is deporting them to Rwanda. Imagine if the same energy and money were put into giving people dignity and respect who have been stripped of it, allowing them to work, pay taxes and raise their families in a peaceful country. Doing so would show the heart of our almighty God for the marginalised and the misrepresented. UK Christians are increasingly perceiving themselves as a minority group. Therefore, we should be especially concerned about laws that seek to put aside people's rights on the basis of political opportunism. If we do not speak up for the voiceless and marginalised at this time, why should we expect anyone to speak up for us in the future? A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. Well, so to our guest this week, my friend Michael Farmer, who is making a return to the show, having been with us a year or two ago. But today, Michael, you're very welcome. We're going to talk to you about uh, prisoners and about relationships. But how are you, first of all? Uh, I'm, well, I'm, a, as the old song said, I'm another year older and deeper in debt. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. Well, um, it's fantastic to have you with us and, and for you to share with us some work that you've been doing. A couple of weeks ago, you made a speech to the Centre for Social Justice, which was intriguingly titled Beyond Liberal Optimism and Penal Populism, which is all about how we deal with prisoners and the prison population. Tell yeah. us a little bit about what that speech was all about. Well, I mean, I think particularly as we're coming up to uh, an election, um, the the penal populism uh, part of the speech comes to the fore because you'll find the main political parties will will almost compete in being tough on crime, as they call it. Um, so tough on crime actually means giving longer sentences. So, for instance, I mean, the, the, the four men in Liverpool, that gang shooting of, of the girl um uh by you know they didn't mean to shoot her they meant to shoot another but but all four of them got more than 40 years um mm. so i mean that's basically the rest of their lives as they were put a lot of them were mi middle age so that there, there is this um 
desire to show you're being tough on crime. Uh, I don't think that's being tough on crime at all. It doesn't seem to actually um, deter crime. And actually, the the way to deter crime and to be tough on crime is, is to work out the right form of rehabilitation, which will eventually, in, in our little talk this morning, we'll come to mm. the word relationships. Mm. Um, the liberal optimism side is where the 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 offender, the 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 person committing the crime, is seen as a victim. Yeah, and, and this this started about the year 1900 but particularly after the 1960s mm. um it was seen and particularly i think on the female part of the estate you you have you have a huge diversion if you like, or dividing line between uh 3800 women in prison and 82000 men in prison so you've got you know there's something wrong in our culture there when when you've got that but you we're seeing women particularly i think as victims mm. victims of of men in many ways domestic abuse violence predators rapists all these sorts of things and men seen in that category as well so i'm saying we've got to look beyond those two extremes and and look at the criminal justice system yeah and yeah. you obviously aren't coming to this fresh um so a few years ago in 2017 the government commissioned you to do a report on male prisoners' family relationships, and then a couple of years later, uh, female prisoners' family relationships. And I think I'm right in saying that you very much think that the the middle way there, I say, the thing that is beyond liberal optimism and penal populism, is a focus upon the relationships that prisoners have, and that being a, a really key indicator as to whether people reoffend or not. Well, it's, it was the MOJ's own data that that showed that uh, rehabilitation was mainly concentrated on employment, training, and education, uh, and they found that both of those pathways in prison uh, led to a ten percent reduction mm. in reoffending. Um, they found that getting a man off drugs, for instance, would lead to a twenty percent, but when a, a man had family visits or a visit from some committed good friend, mm. um, it was reduced by 39%. Wow. And so the data itself showed the way forward that mm. actually relationships were what was important. And in fact, the MOJ, to give them their due, started to see the value of this. That's when they asked me in 2000, it was in 16 actually, to, to do this review. It was published in 17. Uh, we visited lots of prisons um, and we made uh, in the 20s recommendations, but we worked with the civil service. We worked with ex-prisoners. We worked with the, the police, everybody involved in, in, in the criminal justice system and, and said, can you do this? And so, for instance, video calling was one of the recommendations. I mean, the government's implementing every recommendation. Um, but But thankfully, when the pandemic struck, video calling was already allowed mm. if you like it had passed the test in the civil service so they could do it immediately for prisoners in who were suffering lockdown and isolation from their families and so in the in the years since those reports were done and yeah. the government uh put the recommendations into practice how have things changed in in our prisons 
Well, it's a good question because if you read the me media, if, if you look at popular press, you would think nothing's changed. Mm. Um, however, His Majesty's Prison and Probation Service, which is what looks after the prison system, we we work with them. We're on an advisory board. Um, you know, we 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 do, we do a lot of uh, talking to them. And, and what I would say is that there is certainly a a a change of culture. They mm. they recognise the value of relationships, and um, uh, and uh, every prison, for instance, has to publish a family and significant other strategy uh, and deliver against family related issues, including um, you know visits, in increasing a number of people, also looking at people without visits. And, and this is a very big area, which sort of I woke up to about 50% of prisoners didn't have any visits. They, they didn't have any family. 25% of the male population comes out of the care system. I mean, mm. it's terribly sad, actually. Mm. And, um, and so, you know, we were struggling with this. And I thought, I thought to myself, we're talking about relationships, and relationships work when they're good. And actually, we came across this program in Dartmoor when we were visiting there called Peaceful Solutions. Mm. And there, lifers, by and large, had, who had volunteered, had been trained to be mentors and work with other prisoners and befriend them and really become and, and share with them their troubles, their rages, their angers, what they've done, their guilt, how they deal with it. And then just be there to help and encourage and you know, you put your arm around him when he's having a tough time. And and this seemed to be dramatically changing people. I mean, I met one lifer who was doing 33 years and he'd been in there three years and he was now a mentor. And he came into his room and his face was bright. He woke up every morning with something good he could do. Yeah. You know, it just changed the whole whole of his prison existence. So the culture is changing. HMPPS see it. I think even the Secretary of State sees it. But what the work we have to do is to get that culture, that that um, yeast, if you like, mm. moving out into every other government department, mm. because it's that understanding of the value of families, of good relationships, is what we need in our society at the moment. We're far too individualistic. Mm. A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. We're talking to Lord Michael Farmer about how relationships are vital to reforming prisoners for when they leave the prison estate. Uh, Michael, what is it then about relationships that you think are so fundamental to the prospects of people once they leave prison? What, what, what is the impact on individuals that makes such a difference? Well... When you have a committed relationship, which the the ideal one is is the family, but I mean to be quite frank, I mean I am a Christian. I mean I'm talking on Premier Radio, but 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 I, I am a Christian. I've been a Christian for over forty years, and you know Jesus sums up the law, if you like. He sums up life as love God and love your neighbour as yourself. In other words, there's this doing good and and giving life to those around you, and you see it. In families where they're committed, all different sorts of people, but they're there to help each other. And the, the point is something like the state's care system 
you haven't who do you who do you call in the middle of the night when you're really really down and out you know and who who do you go to have christmas with or or who who you know puts their arm around you when you've lost your job or something you know i mean mm-hmm. you're, you're talking about committed unpaid friendships yeah and family families uh as as actually the core to life because without those relationships what is life we we aren't we are a social animal if you like you can say the creature mm. but we we need each other and by ourselves we are we're unhappy creatures <laughs> and for us as as christians there are obviously some key themes here aren't there the valuing every individual no matter what they've done yeah. um believing that there should be justice and therefore punishment is a is a right thing Correct. but there also is the opportunity for redemption um, yeah, exactly. uh, so how do those things play out in your analysis of, of the current state of affairs current state of affairs in what in prisons in terms oh, of well i i, I think it, yeah well i mean <clears throat> It's obviously a rocky road, um, and you know a lot depends on the next Secretary of State. The lot, but actually, the direction of travel, as I said earlier, is a sort of has has been reasonably established that that this is the way forward, and we're seeing in other countries as well. I think Holland and Denmark and other other places that how it works. Um, so um, it, it it is seeing the rehabilitation pathway if you like that the the area of relationships is is the most important mm-hmm. and therefore structure the i mean the the, the point is a prison sentence the mm-hmm. deprivation of, of liberty of freedom is the punishment mm-hmm. being in prison you're not supposed to punish them further There's, that's their punishment being in prison you have a duty of care and the state has a duty of care. And one of them is rehabilitation yeah. to prepare yeah. them, to come back out again. And, yeah. you know, when I was in Manchester, actually, we saw Andy Burnham up there and we'd just been to HMP Manchester, which was up the top of the road. And he was at the bottom of the road. And he, he said, he said, all, all the men you're seeing lying, sleeping in the street on the way down from there, they're ones just been released from prison mm. and they haven't got anybody. So what are they going to do? You know, they go back to their their old ways. Um, yeah, spending time in prison yourself and and talking to those some some of them doing very long uh, terms in in prison. What do you get from those people? Do you get a sense of um, a, a, a a kind of cadre of people who are um, being well cared for? Um, being well guided, uh, or are they being warehoused and learning bad habits while they're inside? Uh, um, it's a good question. Uh, the prison estate is obviously bursting at the seams at the moment. Mm. This is where the penal populism comes in. We send more mm. and more people <coughs> to prison, uh, but they are building new prisons. But frankly, they're overcrowded. Um, they are not in a good state. The reception prisons. Um, where you're getting the courts sending p- 
people on remand. A lot of <clears throat> you can get fifteen percent of the population of a reception prison being on remand or even higher, and sometimes they're on remand for a year or so. Mm. You know, before the court court case comes, it's chaos. They've often been arrested, taken. They're you know, they don't have a toothbrush. They've lost left their glasses behind. That sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And also their mum doesn't know where they are or something, you know. So, but even so, that, that's that's the reception prison. But the main training prisons, as they're called, it de- a lot depends on the governor, uh, the the resources available to the prison system aren't that great. It's generally the bottom of the pile because is is the public interested in a? They think it's being soft on crime if, if you're making conditions mm-hmm. reasonable. There is overcrowding. There is difficulty, for instance, in <clears throat> in arranging family visits because they have a visiting hall, they have a visit centre outside the prison, um, but it can only handle so many. And it, you know, I think a lot of prisons they can handle maybe 50, 50 prisoners in one go with, with their families. Well, they have probably got a population of seven hundred. You know, so so it that. There's still a lot of the sort of old Victorian idea going on. It's they're crowded. They a lot of people do learn crime. There are some very big villains in, in inside, but you know there is this recognition that there is a a, a way forward for mm-hmm. many of the prisoners. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, giving them hope. So let me just ask you as we as we finish, what what's driven you to show this? Uh, much concern and involve yourself and put so much work into this over the last few years what what motivates you well i'm a christian so i pray about things i mean one when i came into parliament which was 10 years ago um uh my big thing was families the fat family breakdown okay so we, we have one of the worst records we we ha- we live in a society which i think is is sort of uh individualistic it encourages the individual uh, rather than, I mean, the laws we pass, like no fault divorce and other things, and then the, and the tax system doesn't isn't friendly to families. So, I, I and 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 my helper, uh, Dr. Callan, who's who who worked for the Centre for Social Justice um, uh, before she started working with me, uh, you know, our big area is families, family hubs, establishing them across the country. So we were going around every department of government. And saying, you know, to DEFRA, to saying to the Treasury, to saying to you know, Home Office, DFE, everything. What are you doing to, to help to strengthen families? And most of the time we got political answers, you know, uh, we're doing this, doing that, which was really two fifths of five eighths and not much at all. <laughs> all right. So uh, and then we got to the MOJ and they said, well, we've got this data, you know, we find, would you like to do a review? And I wasn't looking to go into prisons. I mean, I'm the one who newly, I, I think I visited a man in prison once before this. But anyway, that was the start of it all. So um, the Lord in his grace gives us work to do as he gives you work to do, Tim. Mm-hmm. He gives us work to do. And funnily enough, he's landed us in prison. <laughs> so my <laughs> wife, my wife, when she sends out the Christmas card at Christmas, she said, Michael's been in prison again this year. <laughs> That's a, a great place to start. Michael, we, we are um, or a great place to finish, I should say, but it's so important to, that you do this. And I think that the, um, the the challenging of all of us, so liberal optimism, the sense that 
um, offenders are victims, not really morally responsible. Penal populism, the thought that we should lock them up, throw away the key and there could be no form of redemption and we don't even think about the prisoner. Both of these are misguided and both of them lead to bad outcomes for everybody. So we're really grateful to you for applying your faith in such a practical way and making a difference in hundreds of lives. So uh, may you spend another successful year in prison, Michael. <laughs> Thanks, Tim. Good to be with you this morning. Each week, we give you the opportunity for you to ask any question you'd like about this mucky business of politics. It may be how an aspect of this world impacts us Christians who work within it, or maybe there's a particular issue that you're struggling to make sense of. I'd love to hear from you and attempt an answer, so please drop me an email to farron at premier.org.uk. Well, this week, Desta has been in touch and says this. The recent Rwanda legislation was blocked by the courts. Its own MPs rebelled against it, but yet the government keeps going with it. It feels like we've lost the art of humility in recognising when we've made a bad decision. Is humility in politics still possible? Desta, that's a really good question and obviously a very timely one. And by the time I've got to the end of my question or the or an answer to your question, uh, the question may have changed because everything is moving so much today. But I think the case in point, um, the Rwanda legislation, it being blocked by courts, people rebelling against it. Uh, on one, in one sense, the prime minister, if he believes passionately in something, um, it's it's a bold thing to do to keep going and to uh, stick to something that you passionately believe in. But in the end, Rwanda is a policy, not a principle. It might be an outworking of some principles. And so if something's not working, it is probably a good thing to accept that it isn't. I think that there is a uh, a fine line, certainly a line, between being strong and determined and being blinkered and belligerent. And maybe the latter is a thing that we're sinking into in this particular case. But humility is really important. And it's where Christians, I think, can add something very different and very special and something very much of God um, into the whole political debate, whether it be Rwanda or anything else. Because the fact is, it, if we believe all human beings are sinners and in need of a saviour, that means recognising that we ourselves are sinners. And therefore, even the things that we're most passionate about, we might be wrong about sometimes. And so admitting that we've made mistakes, admitting uh, and apologising if we said things that were wrong or said them in the wrong way is a really powerful thing to do. It might be humiliating for us, but it's also a remarkable witness. So I think humility in politics is vital. Humility in leadership is also vital. The ultimate human leader, Jesus Christ. Um, and yet, how did he behave himself with enormous humility, um, being the one who washed his disciples' feet, the one who spent time with the lowest of the low, those who were the greatest outcasts. Uh, when all said and done, the greatest example of leadership is one which is absolutely riddled with humility. And that's a sign for all of us who are blessed with any kind of leadership role today. If you have a question for Tim, email farron at premier.org.uk. Well, let's end our time together in prayer. Uh, loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for Lord Michael Farmer, for his heart, uh, for those in prison and for their futures. We thank you that he brings and applies Christian principles to this most important area of public policy. Pray bless and strengthen him, open doors for him and give him a good hearing in the halls of government, uh, whoever is in power. Uh, Lord, we pray also for 
the US Congress and the UK Parliament. In these next few days, um, both will be asked to vote on really important issues about aid for Ukraine, about Rwanda here. And I just asked, Lord, that you'd help legislators on both sides of the Atlantic to act wisely and humbly and to think beyond themselves and their own narrow political interests. Um, I pray that, accepting the rebuke, that at times that will be something that I'm tempted to do. May all of us um, use our votes and use the responsibility and power that you have given us in ways which benefit others, benefit the marginalised, benefit the weak, benefit those who are under attack, um, rather than thinking about what might be of short-term political benefit to us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, look, thank you so much for joining us for this week's show. Don't forget, you can catch up on past episodes, which feature interviews with party leaders, former government ministers and MPs from all the major parties. Just search for A Mucky Business on your chosen podcast provider or head to premier.plus forward slash A Mucky Business. See you soon.